From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The culture has changed. America has changed. What the standards are and what lines can't be crossed has changed. And Richard Nixon, as bad as he was in so many ways, was still an institutionalist. And that just doesn't exist with this present-day Republican Party. That's Kurt Anderson. He's the host of the new public radio exchange podcast, Nixon at War. Anderson is a veteran chronicler of American power and politics. In the 1980s, he founded the influential Spy Magazine, where he was an early critic of Donald Trump. For 20 years, he hosted the taste-making radio show Studio 360. And recently, he's written two books, Fantasyland and Evil Geniuses, which dissect the roots of our nation's current problems with truth, money, and extremism. Anderson and I discuss President Nixon's fragile psyche and the lessons our own leaders can learn from his mistakes. We also break down the state of modern media and the shifting relationship between the New York Times and an iconic expletive. And just a note, we do use that expletive towards the very end of the show, so listener discretion is advised. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's time for some listener questions. This question comes in an email from Jeff, who writes, I saw that Andrew Cuomo was questioned this weekend by investigators in Manhattan. How would an investigator go about conducting a sensitive, high-stakes investigation like this one? When can we expect that the investigation will conclude and there will be a report on Cuomo's conduct? Now, of course, Jeff, you're talking about an investigation that's being conducted as to allegations regarding Andrew Cuomo's alleged sexual misconduct, sexual harassment in the workplace as governor of the state of New York. As many of you also know, That investigation is being led by New York State Attorney General Letitia James, Tish James, who has appointed two outside counsel, including my successor at the U.S. Attorney's Office and uh, old friend, June Kim, and a leading employment lawyer, Ann Clark, who have been investigating the matter. So it's a broad question you ask, how do you go about conducting a sensitive high-stakes investigation? Well, these two individuals and their teams have a lot of experience doing that. And I guess most importantly, you have to be meticulous, you have to be thorough, You have to talk to everyone you can think of. Sometimes you have to interview people for hours. You look at documents, you look for corroborating evidence. And I think the fact that Andrew Cuomo was himself interviewed over the weekend, as has been reported, I have no personal knowledge of that, indicates that in all likelihood, the probe is nearing its end. In my experience, and my experience overlaps with June Kim's experience, you interview as many people as you can, you look at as many documents and communications as you can, 
during the course of your inquiry, and then you leave the final subject for the end. That's what happened before the case against Hillary Clinton was closed, as Jim Comey made clear a few years ago. That's what happens in most investigations of this nature. You get as much information you can about the alleged conduct of the subject, and then, if the subject is willing, you interview that person. So I don't know how long it will take them to write up their findings. My guess is, and again, I have no personal knowledge, probably in the coming weeks, not months. What I can also predict, based on my understanding of the professionalism of Kim and Clark, is that the report will be fact-based, professional. It will be without innuendo. It will be a cold look at the facts, mentioning corroboration if there is any, dismissing some allegations that may have been reported if there was no evidence to support them, and the report will speak for itself. So I expect the report to be an honest and accurate piece of work, in contrast, say, to a certain doctored report on nursing home deaths. We also got an email from Christy on a related point. She writes, Hi, Preet. I saw your name tied up in the news around the Cuomo investigation and some rumors that you're going to run for governor. Any truth to any of that? Christy, I assume you're asking that question because you may have seen a story on page six in the New York Post, the headline of which is, quote, Governor Cuomo's team promotes fishy story about Preet Bharara as smokescreen, end quote. So (laughs) this gets a little complicated, and I guess I should explain but let me begin by taking a step back. As you know, and as I've said many times, people don't like to be investigated. People don't like to be prosecuted. I've never gotten flowers or chocolates from people that I've investigated over the years. And Andrew Cuomo, in my experience, is a poster child for this proposition. He's engaged in conduct over the course of time, not even not just with respect to this investigation that we just talked about, but prior investigations as well. He seems to be scared of what will come out, He has adopted the strategy that a lot of other people adopt, and maybe it will sound familiar to you, given the prior president. And that is one way to undermine an investigation is to undermine the investigators, undermine the prosecutors, and suggest, even without any evidence at all, that an investigation or probe is political in some way, or to coin a phrase, is a witch hunt. Does that sound familiar? How do I get tied into all this? It's kind of bizarre, frankly. At the end of last week, I was told by a reporter that the Cuomo camp, and it was very clear that it was the Cuomo camp, was trying to put out word and get it reported that I was meeting with party leaders in the Democratic Party in the state of New York because I was very interested in challenging Andrew Cuomo in the primary for governor next year. And at first I was confused as to why that would be said, because it's not true. I'm not meeting with anybody, and I'm not planning to run for governor next year. And everyone who knows me knows that. It gets suggested to me from time to time, and it's very flattering, but that is not my plan I'm sticking with what I'm doing right now, and I hope you appreciate that. So I wondered, well, why would it be that of all people, Andrew Cuomo would be suggesting to folks that I or someone else would be a primary challenge to him? And as it became clear when I was talking to the reporter, they wanted to be able to argue, the Cuomo camp, that because June Kim is doing the investigation with respect to sexual harassment allegations, and because June Kim has been a friend of mine for a long time, he would be intentionally trying to make it worse for Andrew Cuomo, goes the logic, I guess so that I would have an easier time in the primary. Kind of demented, if you ask me. Doesn't make any sense, but it fits part of a pattern. The other thing that Cuomo's people have been doing is declaring without evidence that Tish James, the attorney general, by the way, the person to whom Andrew Cuomo referred the matter when it wasn't going away, his people are now claiming she also is trying to slam Andrew Cuomo because she wants to run for governor. There's no evidence that she wants to run for governor. She has not stated she's running for governor. And people around Andrew Cuomo 
are just stating blithely that she is. Why? To undermine whatever comes out in the investigation, which is a tactic used by, among other people, Donald Trump. And by the way, for what it's worth, based on my experience over a number of years in the state of New York and as U.S. attorney, there is no way on earth that people around Andrew Cuomo, spokespeople, allies, those speaking on the record, off the record, are making any of these statements, including the lies about me, without the direct approval and or direction of Andrew Cuomo himself. That you can take to the bank. So just to end the point, Andrew Cuomo and the people around him should do that which he himself said folks should do when these allegations of sexual harassment first arose, and that is, let's wait for the report. And I bet it will speak for itself. This question comes in an email from Maria, who asks, what do you make of the indictment of Thomas Barrick, the chair of Trump's inaugural? Do any of his alleged crimes implicate Trump himself? Now, Tom Barrick, of course, has been a very long time associate and friend of Donald Trump. He's reportedly a billionaire in his own right. He has done business with Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort. And of course, most prominently in recent years, he served as the chair of Donald Trump's inauguration committee. Tom Barrick and some other folks are facing serious federal felony charges, chief among them, failure to register as a foreign agent because they were doing work for a foreign power, namely the United Arab Emirates or UAE. There's also charges of obstruction of justice and making false statements, as we've talked about for many years now on the show, is a federal crime. I think any time that you are the subject of charges by the federal government, it's serious. Each of the counts, there are seven in total against Tom Barrick, carries a penalty of a maximum of five years in prison. So that's serious. I think there are other notable things about it. Number one, that the conduct in the case and the onset of the investigation occurred not when this administration was in office, but when Donald Trump was the president. And Donald Trump's own appointees ran the U.S. attorney's offices and ran the Justice Department. So when there's a debate about whether this is a witch hunt or political, I think that's an important fact to keep in mind. It's a long indictment, what we call a speaking indictment. It's 46 pages long. There are a lot of details and a lot of allegations that the government did not have to put into the indictment, but to the extent that they did, to the extent that they can prove the facts that they cite, and there's a lot of direct quotation of communications between Tom Barrick and officials at the UAE, I think it's a serious case for him because it's strong. It alleges, among other things, that the UAE officials basically were directing Tom Barrick to do various things, up to and including inserting a passage that they pre-approved into a speech that was going to be given by Donald Trump. They had conversations about who the UAE wanted to be the U.S. ambassador to the UAE. And Tom Barrick is heard saying that he would help them with that process. That goes to the heart of what the allegations are an effort to affect and change and shape American foreign policy in favor of the UAE without having registered as an agent to do so with the Department of Justice, which is a pretty easy thing to do. And then you have the allegations of lying and obstructing justice. And I know a lot of people like to say the cover-up can be worse than the crime. The way I think about it is the cover-up is the thing that helps to prove the underlying crime. The lying indicates that he knew and was conscious of the fact that he was committing crimes before or that there was something wrong with his conduct. He lied, according to the indictment, about whether or not he'd been directed to do anything by the UAE. He lied about whether or not he had a dedicated telephone with a messaging app on it with which to communicate with the UAE officials. And he also denied and lied about whether or not he tried to facilitate contact between the UAE officials and the White House. Those charges and the failure to register charges, I think, mutually reinforce each other. So I think he's in trouble. Maria, you also ask if any of this implicates Trump himself. Well, not in this indictment. It's fairly clear 
from the indictment, I think from other things that have been indicated from the Department of Justice, that this is all about Tom Barrick and his co-defendants, and he was running this sort of surreptitious influence game without the knowledge of candidate Trump or President Trump or anyone else. Now, people ask the question, will he flip? Even if these counts don't have anything to do with Donald Trump, Tom Barrick, could he flip on the former president? And based on the precedents we've seen, I don't think it's likely. I think that obviously Barrick has known this has been going on. The lies that he's alleged with telling occurred when he was interviewed by FBI agents back in 2019. So he and his lawyers have known this is coming. Presumably, he and his lawyers have had some conversations with prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York, which brought the case, about potentially cooperating. Just like Alan Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump Organization, Tom Barrick chose not to do that. It's always possible there's some information he can substantially assist with in the future. But given the nature of the charges, given his longstanding loyalty to Donald Trump, and given the fact that prosecutors went ahead with charging him rather than announcing a guilty plea and a cooperation agreement, I, for one, at least think the likelihood of cooperation is low. But stay tuned. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. My guest this week is Kurt Anderson. He's the host of the new seven-part history podcast, Nixon at War, which uses archival audio and Anderson's unique wit to make sense of President Nixon's tragic mishandling of domestic dissent and foreign conflict. The final episode of the podcast is out this coming Monday. 
Kurt and I talk about why Nixon's story still matters and what his fall from grace can tell us about the current state of American politics. Kurt Anderson, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Uh, Such a pleasure. So in some ways, you are in the category of favorite kind of guest because you are, or purport to be, a a fan and listener of Café podcasts, including the Cafe Insider podcast. So that's totally. Nice you can check. I, I said that because I knew. I don't you, check. You actually check. I, don't check. I don't look at the list. Should I look at the list and see and see what kinds of people are mm. actually subscribing? That seems like an odd thing to do. It would be. But yes, I am. I am a fan. And, and uh, although I've not listened to the podcast based on your book, I have read the book. Well, thanks for doing that. So you have a new podcast series that is underway and people can listen to now called Nixon at War. But before I get to the podcast itself, since I have you and since you've become something of a Nixon expert in connection with doing this podcast and, and other things that you've explored and, and written about. Can, can we talk generally about Nixon for a moment and sure. see what kind of parallels we draw to the current day? <laughs> yeah. How, how good a politician, just as a raw, strategic, tactical, smart, intuitive, calculating politician, how good a politician was he? He was a an amazingly great politician for the American circumstance of the second half of the 20th century. You know, uh, he was great. I mean, and and he what he was not, famously and obviously, his losing the presidency to John F. Kennedy in 1960 is attributed to the fact that he wasn't so great on television. So apart from that, he was a fantastic politician. He was not a natural politician who loved to do the retail part of it. He he was not good on television, which became obviously more and more an important part of the thing uh, as his career went on and afterwards. But in terms of the brain, amazing. Do you think television, being good at television, is an absolute requirement now for national politicians and maybe even for local politicians? Well, I, yeah, I don't know about local. And one sees Congress people and U.S. senators who are not good on television and they still get re-elected. get elected anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. But to, but to become president of the United States, the yes, commander in chief. No question. No question. And and again, it, you know, as soon as it was around and, you know, as soon as everybody had it, there was Jack Kennedy running for president. And he became president. And to, you know, lesser or greater degrees, we've seen it proven again and again. Ronald Reagan, obviously, Bill Clinton was good on TV. Barack Obama was good on TV. Donald Trump was whatever he is on TV. Well, a lot of, look. TV got him to where he got. Yes, he is a TV star. Exactly. But there's another kind of media. So, you know, every generation has its new forms of media that affect and influence politics. And politicians have to learn how to be good at those things. As you point out, in 1960, Nixon and Kennedy, we have this new thing called social media. And I think most people would agree whether or not you like Trump on social media, where he is now kicked off mostly. He was very good at it and got a lot of attention, sucked up a lot of oxygen. But would you say about social media that it is necessary for a national politician to have a great and powerful presence there or no because of Biden? I don't think we've, we know that yet. I don't think it, it has not heretofore, but like, let's see what Nikki Haley does on TikTok, you know, in a year, you know, <laughs> I mean. Did you just say that? Is she on TikTok? No, <laughs> but Even I'm, saying, I'm not on TikTok. You know, and what by, by social media, obviously in Donald Trump's case, we mean Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, you know, he used that as no one had. So, now anybody who's able and willing will certainly try. But it goes to that larger question of whether Donald Trump is a sweet, generous figure in terms of saying anything and just doing anything to get attention that, yeah, there are the Matt Gateses and, and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world who share that. But, you, you know, so to be good on social media requires a, a certain kind of 
slight, perhaps slightly reckless performative ability that I think still even Republican politicians uh, are a little afraid of doing, probably. Here's another quality that strikes me about Nixon. And you could make the same point about other politicians, although not that many, but that category would include Joe Biden. And that is a person who became a national figure, was successful early on. I mean, Nixon was pretty young when he became vice president to Eisenhower. But then he lost the presidential election to somebody who, you know, many folks, although he won the election, many folks thought was not as experienced. And then he ran for a lesser office, as, as is described and talked about in the podcast, governor of California, in part because the, as the podcast also suggests he, he was the least Californian person to ever run for statewide office in California, uh, arguably. So he's got failure after failure, including at the state level, but he sticks to it and comes back in 1968. What, what is the quality there that causes a guy who has been a heartbeat away from the president, but then suffers incredible and painful and perhaps humiliating electoral defeat, want to stick with it? And is that important to politicians generally? Well, certainly that incredible, almost to me, unfathomable, unfathomable tenacity, given those double rejections. Yeah. Uh, is, I mean, I'm not a quitter, but <laughs> but yeah, I think I might have quit at that but, point. Give me a try. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fire me a couple of times and maybe I'll quit. <laughs> no, uh, he, he is incredibly tenacious and, and was, I think, correctly convinced of his own shrewdness, smartness. I'll do anything I need to do to get elected. All of those, all of those necessities for a successful politician that had nothing to do with the performative presentational retail aspect. So, so just that I, I'm, and, and why, you know, as you know, having listened to the podcast, the, the premise here, it, this was his last shot, even though he wasn't that old, he really, this is, I should be president. I'll be the best president. And it's now or never. So um, he wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to be Adlai Stevenson. Uh, and run. No, I don't think so. Um, in many, in any way, in any sense, was he going to be Adlai Stevenson? <laughs> but, um, and I think, Two, he understood that in some way, as the late 60s were happening and he was running for president that first time, he understood how he could use the backlash against the late 60s to win. I, I, I actually, that's not, so. it's implicit in the podcast, but I, from my reading about him, he's thought, oh, this, this is a good moment for me. I made a mention of Joe Biden earlier, and I don't think there are a lot of people who compare Biden to Nixon but in the sense that Biden had multiple embarrassing runs of the presidency, failed. Is there any comparison there with respect to their qualities? That's an interesting, that's a very interesting comparison. Sure. And, uh, uh, and, and they almost, they don't share a generation, but Biden is only one generation younger than Richard Nixon. Um, in terms of, they are both from this saner time, I guess. I don't think, I think, though, that in the terms of Joe Biden, he seems to have achieved some uh, level of wisdom. And if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. Whereas Richard Nixon was just, I got to get this. I got to get this. I deserve this. I got to get this. He's so, like, Nixon's always, I'm, I'm the phoenix and I'm going to rise from the ashes. Well, no and what. I'm the phoenix that the, the, the bastards, the liberals, the press, the, the whomevers are keeping me from my rightful place. You know, people talk a lot about, and you do also, about Nixon's paranoia. Is that an unusual quality for a nationally successful politician? I think, well, on the one hand, look who we just had as president. 
um, who, who the, the neediness and paranoia of Donald Trump obviously makes us think like, I, I guess it's a natural thing. But no, I think the degree to which he had it and it drove him and, and the whole package of resentments that fueled it uh, is, from my reading of history, unusually high. Of, of presidents in my lifetime. I mean, I, Ronald Reagan, paranoid? No. Gerald Ford? No. Jimmy Carter? Not really. Barack Obama? No. So yeah, I think it was pretty exceptional. And and would you say that that's the reason for his ultimate undoing, his paranoia? Oh, uh, Or his sure. lust for remaining in power? If you want power. one word for it, yeah. for, for the, re- the, the, the reason for his undoing, it is, it is paranoia, um, absolutely. And or resentment. I mean, it, they come in his case as, as flip sides of the coin. Well, you know, it's, there's something else that was sort of interesting that I noted in the podcast, and that is this observation that Nixon, although he's from California and he had all this resentment towards lots of different classes of folks, he did still want to be admired and accepted by the New York City elite. Mm-hmm. And you have a little bit of that, you know, on the part of Donald Trump, who grew up among the New York City elite, although depending on how you define the elite and what these sort of establishment institutions are, he was not necessarily accepted. Is there any is there any parallel there between Nixon and Trump? I think absolutely. Uh, I, I didn't mention that in the podcast because it seemed more about Trump than Nixon, but absolutely. I mean, again, they come from different classes or certainly different levels of wealth. But I think in a certain way, a guy, the son and grandson of these guys in Queens, and he, Donald Trump, like just wishing, wanting to... In a, in a Saturday night fever kind of way, make it in Manhattan, is is not unlike Richard Nixon coming from small town, Nowheresville, California, and, and you know, running against John F. Kennedy of, of Harvard. Uh, I, I think there is a definitely a connection there. And just as Nixon's visceral resentments of the elites, the liberals, all that, was real, and and I think his silent majority, his supporters understood that. To you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. The same with, with Trump. As he was running the first time, when the press would say, but he's a billionaire, he's a rich guy, how, how he has nothing to do with you, working folks. Yes, he does. They sensed that his rage and resentments and contempt and feeling feeling the contempt toward him, they saw that it was real. They saw that, you know, except for his gold fixtures and his third wife, he was just like them. <laughs> except for those things. Except for those things, yes. And the but, casinos but seriously, and the bankruptcies. I mean, I, I think that they both used or or had the benefit of the, the authenticity of their <laughs> resentments and insecurities and paranoia that that some of their voters shared. You know, so I asked the question in a particular way. I asked you what it said about Trump and Nixon, that they wanted to be accepted by the New York City elite, whatever that is. What does it say about New York City that it engenders that kind of approval-seeking on the part of powerful people like that? Well, it is, it is as Paris is to France, New York is to the United States. I mean, you know, there's Los Angeles, there's Washington, and there's all these other nodes of where you want to be approved of. But certainly, again, in the 20th century, for in all ways except political power, New York was the the place. And, and so it doesn't surprise me. It's natural. There, there was, in Richard Nixon's day, certainly no, no alternative. It, there wasn't a, 
at the time, right? George Wallace was trying the grassroots anti-elite candidacy uh, that Donald Trump successfully did. So in, in that sense, I mean, again, looking back to 1968 and Richard Nixon, now that you mentioned this, I mean, Nixon plus Wallace <laughs> equals Trump, you know, in right, the algebra right. of politics. He's the 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 um, illegitimate child of the two of those people. Donald Trump is in some Something ways. Something like that, yes. Or maybe the legitimate with a, with a, child. With a lot of, a lot of artificial coloring. Here, here's, a, I think, a final background personality question. And the reason I'm asking these is because I think it helps to explain and give context to and even drive the narrative of how Nixon handled in parallel the Watergate issues and the Vietnam War. If you could graph Richard Nixon's personality, and there are only two things you could graph on in a, in a pie chart, and one was insecurity and the other was arrogance, what percentage of the pie chart would each take up, you think? Uh, oh, Nixon, that's, that, that's a perfectly well put question because they are major parts of that pie chart. I'd say about half and half is probably fair. And do you think that's unusual or do you think that's typical among powerful politicians? I think that's typical among powerful people. I think that's typical among people or at least successful people. Is yours, you're a pretty successful guy. Are you (laughs) 50-50? No, my arrogance is higher than (laughs) mine. 70-30 in favor of arrogance, Kirk? Uh, It could be. (laughs) Look, this is podcast therapy. One podcaster to another. 60-40. Yeah. I think it's higher. You know why I think it's higher? Because you were prepared to tell us that it was 60. I think and so un- that shows I, that I'm not that, insecure, certainly. Yeah, right? I think that shows that you're underreporting your own arrogance. Okay. How That's about you? View. How about you? I don't, you know what? When I come on Nixon at war, you can ask <laughs> okay. me these questions. All right. No, I've, I, you said you read my book. Yeah. I have written in the book. I didn't apply percentages. But I said, you know, there are times that I have roaring insecurity. Yes, indeed. And also, I'm, I'm a quite confident person, too. It depends yep. on yep. the situation, the yep. circumstance how much sleep I got. (laughs) It depends on a lot of things. But but I do think, by the way, that it is important for that pie chart never to be all of one or the other. Do you agree with that? Oh, well, of course, of course. And, and, you know, I mean, we could attach different words to those, you know, confidence and and humility. And it's kind of the different version of the same thing, but not so negative. So this podcast talks about Two things, not just one thing. And here's how you boil it down. And I want you to elaborate. This is a big softball for you, Kurt, okay. to, ex- to explain the podcast in the following way. You say in it, quote, I always thought of the Vietnam War as a completely separate topic, a different disaster that happened to occur at the same time as all the misdeeds we know as Watergate. But in fact, the two stories are deeply intertwined. How so? In lots of ways. I mean, in terms of the first part of that statement, Watergate came along and eclipsed everything else about Richard Nixon. And and when Watergate, well, when the Watergate burglary happened, I was 17. When when Nixon left office, I was uh, just about to turn 20. So so I was, I, like America, because of, I was then, you know, at the end of high school and in college, paying attention to Watergate obsessively. So I was too uh, was was suddenly thought of Richard Nixon and Watergate as synonymous, and kind of forgot about his conduct of of the Vietnam War to some degree, and certainly in retrospect. And and I think in the popular understanding of who Nixon was, that certainly happened because it was the big event, and nothing like it had ever happened. Vietnam, we tend to understand. Well, first of all, as he didn't start it, he was ending it. He was Vietnamizing it. He he was pulling out slowly, and so he doesn't. You know, in in a certain reading of that history, he doesn't isn't savaged as much 
as he, I believe now, having done this podcast, ought to be. And, and, and I, what I really didn't know and had never registered is the degree to which his paranoia about having his own misdeeds concerning Vietnam uncovered, in especially in the wake of the Pentagon Papers in 1971, were the thing that drove him off the rails and made him start ordering burglaries and enemies lists and abuse of the IRS and all of the gangsterism that then a year later produced the Watergate burglary and two years after that, his resignation. So it one led just directly to the other. And in pretty short order, I had I had never just in my you know mental catalog of Nixon, Vietnam, the 1960s and 70s, I had never seen that that full-on interconnection that was just absolutely the case. So let's take a step back. You mentioned the Pentagon Papers. Remind people who may not be familiar because they're young what the Pentagon Papers were. The Pentagon Papers were was this massive history that the Department of Defense under Lyndon Johnson uh, commissioned to find out what is the history of the United States involvement in the war in Vietnam. They were in the middle of the war, you know, fighting the war in Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson had escalated, had sent more than 500,000 Americans there to fight it. But his secretaries of defense said, let's figure this out. <laughs> now that we've, you know, it, it's kind of like ready, fire, aim. Here, here, they went back to create the, this report to aim and say, and it was meant to be, And it was meant to be secret. And it was, meant to, it was secret. It was meant to be secret. <laughs> right. And and then, uh, and it was finished at the end of Lyndon Johnson administration, 68, 60, early 69. And then uh, two years later, uh, one of the people who had actually contributed to it and was part of the defense establishment of Lyndon Johnson and of a little bit of Richard Nixon, Daniel Ellsberg leaked it to the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times published it on June 13th, 1971. And it was a big, big deal because it, it said, Look! Look at all this 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 history of of lying and falsehood uh, that was at the very core of our our Vietnam policy, let alone immorality and all the rest. So it put the White House in a bad light and executive branch officials in a bad light, but not the Nixon administration. Correct. So explain a little bit, and you go into this in the podcast. You know, you know Kissinger tells Nixon, I believe. We don't have a lot to, to the extent that you're looking at it through the lens of what's good politically or bad politically for us. In public opinion, it actually, if anything, will help us a little bit because this is a gold mine of showing how the previous administration got us in there. It just shows massive mismanagement of how we got there. And it pins it all on Kennedy and John. This was the guys from before. Right. So why was Nixon so angered and why was this such a propulsive event for Nixon when he wasn't even the one who was cast in such a bad light? Well, the most charitable version is that he he just thought that secret documents, secret government documents shouldn't be leaked to the press. So that that is the most righteous, charitable, arguable case for what, Nixon's reaction. But especially, I think, listening to the tapes and, and, and tracking how his reactions changed quickly over time, that, that was what he said, and, and certainly... Uh, was part of the engine of his freakout, but it was more about, oh my God, if the liberals and the peaceniks are going to leak that, God knows what they're going to leak about me and bring me down. So it was, it was, it was that. It but that's fascinating. Let's unpack that for a moment. Number one, and there's some news today that we can talk about that is re- relevant to this. Um, so it's fairly timely to talk about even now in 2021. 
there is nothing wrong with an executive branch official, up to and including the president, to be upset with and angered by leaks of classified information. And we can get to the question of what you know enforcement mechanism there should be and whether there should be investigation. But but the fact of something that's supposed to be classified and is appropriately classified, not getting into stuff that's overclassified, but appropriately classified material, you read about in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, fair for officials to get upset about that, right? Yes, absolutely. In many instances, in this case, though, if to take to take that argument in this case, we are talking about uh, reports on on the conduct of the war from at the very most recent three years earlier and up to forty years earlier. So it wasn't as though it was, uh, you know, we, the methods of intelligence methods were being released or that the conduct of the war now would be jeopardized or any such thing. So. But yes, it was a secret document. Do you think that most journalists agree, and this is, I'm asking a very limited question, that most journalists agree that it is fair uh, and understandable for presidents to be upset that properly classified information has been leaked to the press? It's a good question. I mean, because there's the question of do they understand it posed that way by, say, you in this direct way. But do they really, I mean, were they happy that Barack Obama and the Obama administration prosecuted people for- Right. So, the, But that's the second part. So I'm going to get to that because there's some news on that that I, that I want to uh, mention. When I think about people and their views and where they come from, if they're journalists, whether it, it's, I think it's useful to understand where the other side is coming from. Now, it is often the case, very often the case, that people have a justified reaction to something that's legitimately perceived as bad. And then they overreact and they try to do things like prosecute journalists in a way that is contrary to the values of the First Amendment and something else. But I'm, I'm putting that second. Right. I, I guess I'm just trying to understand whether or not journalists understand the weightiness as a general matter uh, of the leak of classified information. Or if generally speaking, the mission of trying to get as much stuff out in front of the public as possible, that it overrides any sort of at least understanding. Like this is, this is, a, this is a complex question. And I think a lot of people approach it as it's like, it's so easy. Of course, this stuff, if it gets leaked, it gets leaked. And you know, that's wonderful. There should be protections for journalists. A bit of news I keep talking about is you and I are taping this at lunchtime on, on Monday, July 19th. And minutes before we came on to tape, uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general announced a new set of uh, guiding principles that make this department, this administration, probably the most protective of journalists uh, against subpoena and compulsory process by the Department of Justice in history. So certainly there's a view by this administration that even if they don't like something that's coming out, what they can do about it has to be limited because of the principles of the free press. Do you think journalists understand this to be a complicated thing or a simple black and white thing? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of journalists, as we know. There, there are stupid, <laughs> bad faith ones, and there are responsible, intelligent, thoughtful, good ones. I think the people whose journalistic practice entails this kind of you know, secret documents and classified documents and reporting them or not, absolutely understand that, 99% of them. But as your question also implies and suggests, <laughs> the, the the journalistic id of, oh, look at these secrets. I got them. I want to report them. <laughs> right. Gets in the way of the superego of, no, of course, I understand, you know, the, the needs of, of, of government to keep certain things secret. You said something else recently and you used this word a few minutes ago in our talk as well. And the word is gangster, yeah. which obviously always makes me interested when people talk about gangsters. <laughs> and 
And you said, and, and this, this has been sitting with me for a couple of days, quote, I never quite realized the degree to which Vietnam and specifically the Pentagon Papers released just turned him, Nixon, into the gangster that he was always ready to be. <laughs> I love into the gangster that he was always ready to be. There's a lot going on <laughs> yeah. in that sense, including you know, an implication about whether his gangsterism was latent, why that was the trigger, why you use the word gangster. Can you just talk, can you talk about that a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. Um, and I think I said that in an interview, but I'm, I'm, not, did, yes. I'm not backing off it. I'll stand by that statement, absolutely. Um, well, you know, it wasn't as though he, he was a, a saint and then he became this bad guy at the end. You know, he, 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 he was always willing to do dirty deeds, as we saw in, in his joining up to, be, to being this sort of squishier anti-communist to Joe McCarthy's hardcore anti-communist in the 50s. But he, you know, he, he, he kept to certain basic moral legal lines, it seems, for most of his career. But he was, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. The, 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 the ordering burglaries, abusing federal power, all, executive power, all the rest. So that's what I meant by the, the gangster he, he had in him as a latent piece. Now, I would also say, again, in my sense of the, the we are all sinners. We could all, you know, in the right circumstance, turn out to be crooks or gangsters or bad people or whatever when push comes to shove and our character is tested. But I, that's what I meant by that in that case. And so... I, I think the other thing I meant, or I mean to unpack that, is that the national security justification, because we were in this undeclared war in Vietnam, uh, for anything he wanted to do, because as he told David Frost some years later. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal, by definition. Exactly. So, you know, he had that kind of proto-autocratic, righteous, gangster thing that was then i think at the at for the last 3 years of his of his presidency triggered by the pentagon papers uh leak and release um decided uh, by any we're going to take do whatever it takes and blow you know break into the brookings institution break into watergate break into daniel ellsberg's psychiatrist's office whatever it takes to uh find every secret we want and keep every secret about me that I want to keep. And, and so that, that's what I mean about becoming a gangster and, and hiring burglars and thugs and former CIA guys and to, to do this dirty work. But, but here's the thing that I don't get. And maybe, you know, powerful, nationally successful folks are always bundled up in contradiction. But guys who want their secrets kept and are paranoid about their secrets— and see a lesson in other people's secrets being revealed as causing them to be even more paranoid about their own secrets. Guys like that don't tape all of their meetings. Wow. Well, yeah. So yeah. can you explain that to me? Well, because he he I don't think he understood himself to be having suddenly become a gangster, a a, a smart, you know, John Gotti guy who like, yeah, we don't talk on the phone, we don't tape, we don't do any of that. I don't think he understood that. Yet, even as it was happening, because again, he was the president. Of course, he could order this or X or Y or Z. He was, after all, ordering tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to be killed in a war. So, what's a little break in? Um, so, I think that's part of it. But also, as we talk about in the in the podcast, his insecurity and insecurity combined with arrogance led him to the taping. He 
set up the taping system in the Oval Office and elsewhere in the White House and and on many phone calls that he had as well because he he wanted history to understand how good he was, that he was the one doing good things. It wasn't Henry Kissinger, that he was the one who was the architect of the opening to China, not Henry Kissinger. So it was it was that kind of insecurity slash narcissism of wanting a record for history uh, that led him to tape it, which, of course, is the ultimate irony, tragic irony, I guess, yeah. if you're Richard Nixon. I, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Kissinger. Is it your view that Kissinger ably manipulated Nixon? Yes, he did indeed. He, 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 and, and judging by the tapes that, of which we play many, it wasn't too hard to do. And again, who do I think of? The last president. The, the, Except, he was, but can, can I just, because there was one more, I guess, foundational question I should have asked you. Not just that Nixon was a very, very smart politician. Nixon is a highly intelligent person, correct? Correct. Is Kissinger smarter than Nixon or was there something else at play here? Uh, Kissinger was differently smart than Nixon, but no, they were two very, very smart guys. Um, but Nixon was a very, very, very needy person that, that insecurity part of your pie chart. Um, and Kissinger shamelessly pandered and played to that like nobody else did. I mean, even his, his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, you hear him on the tapes like, you know, yeah, yeah, Mr. President, that was great. But he goes nowhere, gets nowhere close to what Henry Kissinger was willing to do in saying, oh, Mr. President, you are the, you're the fantastic, you're the most wonderful president ever, and all, on and is on, that on, your, on Is that your Kissinger impression? It's as good, I could, if, if you want bad. me to prepare, yeah, that was my <laughs> off-the-cuff Kissinger impression. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. Okay. Oh, sorry. I think that's the first Kissinger impression we've had on the show, though. Really? Wow. Yeah, so it's the best one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can say that's definitely the best one. Okay. Do you think that there, there ever was a time, even after the presidency, and maybe this is known, I, I just don't know it, that Nixon appreciated that he had been manipulated? That's a very good question. Um, probably. I, again, he was self-aware enough and, and ruthlessly honest enough, I think, that he probably understood that. But but he and Kissinger, and I think he knew at the time that he and Kissinger both used and manipulated each other, and they were these two you know, scorpions in the jar who had made some kind of uh, agreement, <laughs> you know, to, so, you know, to help each other and use each other. So I, I think he knew that. But if you're Richard Nixon and you think about, well, how did Henry Kissinger manipulate me? What, what did he make me do that I wouldn't have done? I don't think that there's anything I can think of that that would be. Part of the theme here, as we've been discussing, is that things that happened in Vietnam from the perspective of Nixon and things he did with respect to Watergate are intertwined. Is that unusual, given that these are there was a domestic issue and a foreign policy issue, or are there many other occasions that, that perhaps we should look more closely uh, at these things in other presidencies, policies that look to be separate and distinct and involve different personnel and different considerations, but are actually very, very, very intertwined and wrapped up with each other because they are overseen by the same human? Yeah. Well, I think if we can proceed to Donald Trump who is, you know, this- Permission this of, granted, sir. Who, who, is a, who is, you know, some kind of devolved Frankensteinian version of, of, of Richard Nixon, and that's unfair to Nixon in many ways. But I, I think we see there that, like, what he did in Ukraine, what he did with Russia, what all, everything he did, obviously, was simply and purely about how does it help me? How does it accrue to my reputation, my feelings, my money, my, my whatever? So- 
again, he's an extreme example, but but he's not in that as otherwise entirely an outlier. So yeah, I think your point is a really good one, and I think there are uh, yeah are are there ways in which the distinctions between this part of a presidency or that part of a presidency are are too uh, are more permeable and fungible than we think for sure. The thing with Nixon is is well, Watergate was such a one off so far <laughs> as a as a thing that it's it, you know that, that that that's it's hard saying what what would be the Watergate equivalent in other presidencies. I don't know. And Vietnam is not a one off, but it certainly is in its tragic import uh, a huge and different thing. So so yes, I think that's true, and and we should regard presidencies as much as as reflections of the the guy uh in all of his respects as opposed to this uh bucket of policy or this silo of issues but i think there there is a certain uh peculiarity to the to 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 nixon and what he presided over which is to say the end of the vietnam war which was destroying so much of the american fiber of solidarity and watergate which was destroying the rest of the sense of American self-confidence and trust in government and institutions and the rest. My conversation with Kurt Anderson continues after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., How naive is it to ask whether politicians ever ask first, what is the right thing to do, rather than what is the thing that will most advantage me or my party or my position? Well, you have spent much more time with professional politicians than I have, so you probably are a better answerer of that question. But but I, I would say, and we ha- what in making this podcast, one thing that astounded me was at the end of episode two, I don't want to spoil too much, but... There's this conversation between the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, a Democrat, his his Democratic Secretary of State, his Democratic Secretary of the Defense, talking about whether they should, you know, confirm this news story that's about to be published the day before the election that could win the election for his Democratic vice president against Richard Nixon. You know, nobody was listening to this as far as they knew (laughs) in the future, but they they were very earnestly saying, but what would be the right thing to do here? Time is of the essence inasmuch as Davis has a deadline to meet. He speculated that should the story be published, it will create a great deal of excitement. Now, what he gets from Saigon is well and good and fine, but uh, if he gets it from us, I want to be sure that A, 
we try to do it in such a way that our motives are not questioned, and two, I want to be sure that what we say can be confirmed. Well, Mr. President, uh, I have a very uh, definite view on this. Secretary of State Rusk. I do not believe that any president can make any use of telephone pants in any way that would involve politics. The moment we cross over that divide, we are in a different kind of society. And from their point of view, they did the right thing. So it might be naive now or more naive now, but at that moment in November of 1968, it's the way it went down. Many years later, decades later, after the time period that you study and describe in the podcast, what are the lingering consequences for us today in 2021? I think other than, as I say, (laughs) Vietnam and Vietnam plus Watergate may be permanently crippling America's ability to govern itself and get along. I think what Richard Nixon did as a way to politically use Vietnam and the anti-war protests and the anti-war feeling, setting up what he did so brilliantly, uh, such a work of evil genius, in in his famous silent majority speech at the end of 1969, as the anti-war movement was really becoming scaled and mainstream, to create this us regular Americans, silent majority, white suburbanites, describe it how you will, versus them, protesters, hippies, liberals, the press, professors, black people. The way he 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 set that up very explicitly as president, which to me is, is different than doing it as a candidate in 1968, as president around an issue of foreign policy, right? Not around the cultural issues that he is making the issue, this us versus them thing set that up to eventually and and egregiously and horribly in the Trump presidency to become the central primary Republican issue, if you can even call it an issue, or platform, if you can even call it a platform. But the way they run is is us versus them. And 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 that really, along with you know, uh, all of the, the politicization of the Justice Department. Where did that, well, sure, we saw Bill Barr, but look at John Mitchell and Richard Nixon and taping, trying to find, spy on journalists. Yeah, Trump administration, but look look at the Nixon administration. Yeah, so I keep getting, conf- Nixon, conf- I've realized that I'm much more confused by Nixon and his legacy than I had been before. Good. And all of the, th- all of the things, you know, I don't have a large mind. A lot of the things you describe, I totally get it. But the end of the Nixon story is not that these things worked. The end of the Nixon story is that he was completely ruined and humiliated and had to leave the White House grounds on Marine One and is on every list, we'll get to this in a moment, is on every list, a viable contender for worst president in the history of the country and most corrupt. So why are people learning these lessons from before the end of the story? Well, what I think what you just said tells us and why I kind of cringe and push back when people say, oh, look, it was a great moment in 1974 when he resigned and it was peaceful and it was good and, you know, justice and dignity and rule of law triumph. Sure, that's all true. But in some ways, the rot and the decadence that began in that time and out of that administration so significantly is part of what led us to the 2010s and now the 2020s, where we have moved way beyond the pale that we had never moved before. We'd moved way beyond the Rubicon, where, where you know, famously in 1974, the elders of the Republican Party went to Richard Nixon and said, Mr. President, you got to go. Time to go. This isn't going to work. And 
Absolutely nothing like that happened, obviously, with Donald Trump. And so the culture has changed. America has changed. What the standards are and what lines can't be crossed has changed. And Richard Nixon, as bad as he was in so many ways, was still an institutionalist who understood, as did the rest of his party, understand, like, you stepped over the line, you've been caught, you got to go. And that just doesn't exist with this present-day Republican Party. Yeah, you know, just in thinking about this conversation, (laughs) I'm getting more concerned. And it might be because of my simpleton prosecutor brain, uh, which has been, you know, pressed for a very long time into the belief that there's such a thing as deterrence. And so people do bad things, and they get punished, and other people see that, and they are generally deterred from doing the same thing. Now, there are always going to be some subset of folks, and maybe Trump is in that category, who don't care and are just going to be corrupt. And no amount of there but by the grace of God go I stuff ever penetrates their brains. But in, in hearing us talk about this, you know, you had Nixon doing all these terrible things. He was cast into political oblivion for it, and still people learned the wrong lessons. Trump did all these terrible things and was on multiple occasions tried to be held accountable by the Congress. Who knows what other accountability awaits him? I'm not quite sure that there will be. It seems to be compounding the, the legacy of Nixon. If Nixon was punished politically, at least, and not everyone learned the right lessons, if Trump is not punished politically or otherwise, how much worse are the lessons learned now? That's a very complicated question. Um, <laughs> um, I know, but you have I, sixty I, seconds to answer it. Sir. Well, I will just return. Uh, what I mean, it's virtually a rhetorical question, which is to say, yes, we're. It feels like we're a little bit f- in this way because <laughs> because Trump has not been really held accountable in any meaningful way. And 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 moreover, leaving him aside, the Republican Party uh, and the senior Republicans uh, have not held themselves accountable, have not, you know, Mitch McConnell has not held Josh Hawley <laughs> really accountable, even though they, you know, they yell at each other, they did for briefly. So, so I, it's all a measure of how your neat rule of law, prosecutorial deterrence, oh, they won't commit those crimes anymore, at that level with these people uh, isn't working. You know, it gets back, I, I often th- I think of, you know, when, when we talk, I think legitimately about this Republican Party and it's so many of its supporters being members of a cult, which I think is no longer a metaphor. Um, well, how do you deprogram people from cults? And, I, and I've known people in cults and I've seen them get out the other side. And, and you know, we saw what happened in Germany and Japan after the war, after World War II. But what, well, what I'm saying is it, it's a larger sense of this, wait, this is supposed to be a deterrent. And, and somehow two generations after Richard Nixon, that isn't so anymore. And, and, and similarly, I, it, it seems to me it's because so many millions of people have, been, have, have come to believe that, no, it's simply about who has the power. And it doesn't matter how you get it. It's just about who has the power. You used a word earlier on the podcast that is not often used on this podcast. We're a family podcast. You use the F word. And you, you must know why I'm bringing up the F word. Oh, because, okay. Because you recently did a meditation on the use of that four-letter word uh, in The Gray Lady, The New York Times. What made, you, what made you think of delving into the frequency over time of the usage of uh, some people's favorite word, the F-bomb, in The New York Times? Because I was slightly shocked uh, at the beginning of the summer when I saw in a long essay by the esteemed and great uh, Salman Rushdie uh, a use of that word in its past tense, uh, in a literal way. And see, I'm, I'm avoiding using it now, right? <laughs> you can use it. We can bleep it. 
Oh, okay. So, so and so, it was, he was talking about 1001 Nights and saying Scheherazade's sister sat at the foot of the marital bed watching her sister get fucked for 1001 Nights. And whoa, I, 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 it was funny to me that I, I was shocked <laughs> to see that in the New York Times. Um, but you're not shocked generally. Like you're familiar with the word. I, and, I, I am very And you're familiar, familiar with that usage. As I was, dem- of course. And, okay. and, 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 <laughs> and, and when I, back when I was editor of New York Magazine, one of, one of my things was like, yeah, we can use these words. And this asterisk, asterisk, asterisk thing is stupid. And we either use them or don't. But anyway, um, yeah. And so I thought like, that's interesting. And then I, and then, and then I heard a, heard the word uh, on a on an Ezra Klein podcast and saw yeah that's printed in the transcript and I and and then yet one comes across all these like and then he uttered a certain barnyard epithet or then he used the, the word <laughs> that all these contorted ways that journalists to to my mind ridiculously sometimes get around saying the four letter words in question when they're in the news right so I was curious just like what is the what is the policy here and so I started searching my New York Times archives as a subscriber I could do and discovered exactly how many times over the years from what apparently was the first use back in 1984 or at least that's as far as I found it and 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 how it ebbed and flowed and how the floodgates would be open and then closed and it was just amusing to me that it seems as though there is no clear policy for that that word and other Dirty, naughty, smutty, whatever. Do you have a Do you have a view other than the 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 observation that there's an inconsistent application of some non-existing rule about when you use that word in a in a newspaper? If you were asked to write the policy for the New York Times, what would be an appropriate f word? I'm going to say it because we're going to bleep it because it's weird to say the f word all the time. What would what would be what would be what would be your guidance if you were asked on usage of the word fuck in the New York Times? I, I would I would have to sit down and consider that and write it, but I would. Uh, would you read Would you read books of philosophy and, uh, no, or books of no, etiquette? No, but it's interesting that some of the the comment I got from people afterward was, oh, so they have actually a different policy for print and and online occasionally, which is odd. And then somebody was saying, oh, well, that's because you know some grandparents may be reading the print. I said that's ridiculous. I, you know. I mean, that, well, that's grand, just, grandparents should know better than anybody. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, what that word means and the context in which it's used, I'd be more concerned about children than grandma and grandpa. I, I you know, I, I no, I, I don't know. That it's, it would be very difficult to codify the policy and not make it on a, and not do it as they're now obviously doing it on a case by case basis. But I, I don't know. I think if I were the editor, I, I would not make it so weirdly inconsistent from day to day that there there is no I would try to have the I mean obviously when when Donald Trump used it and it was you know noteworthy or when the first lady uh, used it to talk about Christmas decorations and it was noteworthy they used it but pretty recently when it's come up in news events they don't and and uh, and as I say I mean that the in the Supreme Court decision about the cheerleader in Pennsylvania who was suddenly right. free to say to do her snapchat with you know, fuck everything in her little Snapchat cutely. Um, th- they didn't say it in that. Like, why? That that seemed like a per- th- that in my code of when to use it is exactly when you should use it. You know, because- it's literally the basis of what the Supreme Court was deciding was protected speech or not. The basis of her punishment, as the court found, in contravention of the First Amendment. Right. Right. What if she had said F? And and as a reader of the New York Times, you don't know what she said. You know, uh, until you had to go somewhere else. And and at this day and age, and as you say, with an important First Amendment 
Supreme Court case, like, come on, say it. What about on television? What about television? You think there's a difference between television and print? Uh, I don't know. I mean, at this point- Somehow you know, I've turned you into a standard and practices I know, and, and, and the, internet has, the internet has mooted all of that, right? I mean, what well, kid- it's, it's weird to me, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very good about my language on these programs. Uh, I, I may not always be good about my language privately, but it, it does, in some ways, over the last few years, jars me a little bit to see anchors say the words bullshit and shithole. In part, it may be necessary because in those instances that I can think of, they're direct quotes from the president of the United States. And how do you report it in, in a way that, that people can understand the context without using the words? Do you think that's fair? I, I do, but and, and I think again that they they haven't caught up. I, I, I TV TV even though what is TV in the age of the internet is different. I get that, but and and in terms of as you say, being whatever you are, alarmed, startled, offended. No, not offended. Just okay. It was just jarring. Just jarring. Yes, no jarring. Well, I, my my strong experience of that was having young children in the 1990s, in 1998. Oh, right. <laughs> with of the course. dress and, and the DNA. And what, what are we talking about, daddy? And uh, that was quite something. Um, what kind of job? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that, that's why I wrote this piece, because it's not an easy all or nothing thing. It used to be like, we never say these words. I never have these words in print. And, and, and to me, the various solutions, the F-bomb, the, the, asterisks, the, all those things. I, I just think they're coy and stupid because, of course, what they're, <laughs> what they're doing is like, oh, you, the listener or reader, are forming that word in your head, but we're not going to put it here. I mean, what, what is that? <laughs> That's like- Wait, so now, so, na- so now I feel, I'm sure you didn't mean to do this, now I feel that you will be judging me or will have judged me to use a tense formulation that you used earlier. When you hear this podcast and if we beep out these words, then you think we're being coy and stupid. Well, it's fair. It's totally fair. I get. It. I mean, I mean, uh, I, I not you. You're not coy and stupid, but yes, <laughs> you're, it, I, you're I, I stammering. Think, I think no, I, I think I, we I, have I, an answer. No, yes, I do. I think it's silly. And 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 frankly, the reason I said the word myself is is I thought, well, podcast. Right, you know no what? F- no FCC. We can say whatever we want. Kurt, fuck it. Yes, sir. We're gonna fuck it. We're gonna we're gonna put it in. <gasps> I'm shocked. Kurt Anderson. The podcast is Nixon at War. It's great. You can get it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Kurt, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, such a pleasure. My conversation with Kurt Anderson continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So folks, to end the show this week, I want to take a moment to address what to me is a very important controversy. Now, it's not the most pressing issue facing our nation today, but it matters significantly to a subset of the population, one that I find myself in, and that is a subset of people who are true fans of Bruce Springsteen. The controversy is simultaneously, I should say, about music and language and evidence and even strict textualism. So for those who listen to Stay Tuned every week, you know that I talk about Bruce all the time. 
Most recently, when I went to see him live on Broadway with my son a couple of weeks ago. You may have also heard me say, and I've said it multiple times on the record, that the song Thunder Road on the 1975 album Born to Run is not only my favorite Springsteen song, it's my favorite song, period. And I don't want to hear anything about that. In fact, I started one of the chapters in my book, the one about cooperating witnesses, with the line as an inside joke to fellow Springsteen fans, the screen door slams. which of course is the first line of Thunder Road. Now, the second line of that song is where the controversy arises. Depending on your lyric, after the screen door slams, the lyric either goes, Mary's dress waves, or Mary's dress sways. Mary's dress waves. The same night I saw Springsteen on Broadway, New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman was coincidentally also in attendance. And as a recent Variety article notes, just before the show started, Maggie tweeted out, a screen door slams, Mary's dress sways, immediately taking a side in this controversy. Little did she know that would ignite a Springsteen fan Twitter storm. My whole life, I have thought that Mary's dress waves, and I've sung it as waves at home and even at karaoke. To be clear, this isn't a new debate sparked by Maggie. Springsteen fans have been fighting over whether the dress belonging to Mary waves or sways for the last 46 years. Yeah, that's how old the song is. And though many have argued that it sounds like sways to their ears, this is an important bit of evidence. The original vinyl pressing included lyrics that clearly stated waves. It's in writing. That's the original text. That would suggest the original intent of our founder, Bruce Springsteen. Well, not so fast. Last weekend, as the controversy was renewed, New Yorker editor David Remnick, who's also a former Stay Tuned guest, reached out to Springsteen's longtime manager, John Landau, via email to see if he could settle the debate. And so here's where the news comes in. Landau responded with some official word on the subject. And he said, despite the text on the original liner notes, the word he says is not waves, it's sways. And he said that any typos in official Bruce material will be corrected. Typos? That's a 46-year-old typo. He also, by the way, interestingly, claims that there's an even earlier writing that Bruce wrote the song that way with the word waves in his original notebooks, but he's produced no evidence of it. I don't know how courts would interpret drafts of legislation. I don't think they put a lot of stock in them. But nonetheless, that's what Landau says. And that's not insignificant evidence. He also pointed out a potential common sense argument in favor of the word sways. He said, quote, by the way, dresses do not know how to wave. I don't know if that's true. And we'll come back to that in a moment. There's another common sense argument because of the next line of the song. So it's, the screen door slams, Mary's dress waves or sways. Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays. And plays and sways as a better rhyme for plays, so the argument goes. So I get that. So I'll admit there's some real evidence that Mary's dress sways. But some people are still not buying it. This week I tweeted simply, Mary's dress waves. I know, pretty daring of me. And there was a lot of reaction. Let me share some of it with you. Some folks agreed with me. Christine responded, yep, amendments are for the Constitution, not Springsteen lyrics. I stand with the printed lyrics on the original album. Good for you, Christine. David responded, we have all been singing that since 1975 because we read the words on the album cover. It's over. No takebacks. That's a decent point. Marvin wrote, this is like that black and blue or white and gold dress controversy from a few years ago. You see what you want to see. You hear what you want to hear. 
My ears have heard waves for 45 years. Marvin, great point. But it may be that the better analogy is that business about whether you heard Yanni or Laurel. Remember that? And Jeff said, I'm with you. For all those saying a dress can't wave, I say, if the star-spangled banner can wave, so can Mary's dress. Amen, Jeff. Many folks, however, were on the other side. Specter Hair Day, <laughs> Specter Hair Day posted, I stand with the lyric he sang, not the uncorrected misprint. Yeah, 46-year-old misprint. Sean replied, Preet, much as I respect your opinion on all things Bruce, I have to disagree. This one sounds clearest to me, both the S for sways and the lack of a V for waves. Sam wrote, sorry, my friend, but Mary's dress sways. Sways rhymes with plays. Besides, dresses can't wave. Okay, that's your opinion, Sam, but I think we've addressed that. And some folks didn't take a side. Rosalita replied, that dress can do anything it wants to. It's the boss, for God's sakes. That's a fine point, too. So amid the turmoil, some members of the E Street Band got into the act. Niels Lofgren's wife tweeted, quote, a band member has waded in. Niels Lofgren is going with sways. So that's significant. But another E Street Band member had a different reaction to the controversy. According to the Variety article, Stephen Van Zandt, also known as Little Stephen, wrote, quote, Oy vey, get this Bruce lyric shit out of my feed. So I've always been a waves guy, and perhaps to some of your dismay, that's how I will continue to sing it. I think I'm too old to change now. But as a trained lawyer and someone who really values evidence and someone who is not a Scalia disciple, I don't think the text is everything. I am prepared to believe that Mary's dress did indeed sway and not wave. I will note, however, that at the moment that I'm recording this, the ultimate authority on the subject, the boss himself, has yet to confirm or deny. So stay tuned. Well, screen door dress and there is another relevant party who is also not weighed in. As Variety notes at the end of the article on this controversy, quote, Mary could not be reached for comment on this or on not being particularly beautiful, end quote. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Kurt Anderson. And if you like all that history Kurt and I talked about today, don't forget to check out our new weekly history podcast, Now and Then, wherever you listen. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Weiner, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Cool. 
Quad 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Quad 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Anthropic. 